William was born in 1494. As a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, he studied and taught at Oxford University. He was a world-renowned expert in Hebrew and Greek. Years later, he would become, through the regular, later in life, through the regular reading of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, he would come to affirm the Protestant understanding of justification by faith alone. He was a gifted translator and translated the Bible, the Greek New Testament, then the Hebrew Old Testament, into English in 1534. He would die on October 6, 1536, two years after translating the Bible into English as a heretic. It was forbidden under English law for the Bible to be written in the language of the people. Just after a few years, rather a few years after his death, the King of England would authorize a new translation to be translated into English from Erasmus's Greek New Testament, for which about 70% of it was William Tyndale's own translation. The Bible we know today as the King James Version was fearlessly translated by a man who believed in the power of the word. Why would Tyndale spend his life, even sacrificing his life, being burned at the stake as a heretic for translating the Bible into English? Why would he do such foolish things? Why would he want the Bible in the language of the everyday person in the English empire? Because he knew that if the everyday person got their hands on a copy of God's word and could read it for themselves, that their lives would be transformed. Because see, God uses his word and the promises to create life where there's death. William Tyndale believed that the word of God was sufficient for the salvation of men's souls, not the church. And so seeking to undermine the, the work of the Catholic Church, he seated the people with God's word. And I start with that this morning because it's a helpful reminder that saints before us have believed in the power of God's word read publicly and privately. Because it's in the reading of God's word and the, and the faith and the promises contained therein that God creates life where there's death. We're going to think this morning about God's promises. And, and that's a continual theme throughout all of the book of Genesis. God is just, just passing out promise after promise after promise. And much of reading your Bible is then seeing those promises fulfilled later. Through the book of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, and on throughout. And then ultimately seeing those fulfilled in, in the person of Jesus Christ well, as a reminder of where we've been we've been over the last number of weeks looking at the life of Joseph Jacob's favorite son and at the invitation of Joseph Jacob begins a long process of relocating his family to Egypt we have learned that God has been sovereignly orchestrating the events of Joseph's life to bring about the salvation of not only the Egyptian people but but God's covenant people, the nation of Israel. God was using his suffering servant, Joseph, to bring about the salvation of Israel. And after their long-awaited reunion, Joseph sends for his family, invites them to come down to Egypt where he'll provide for them and care for them and teach them about what God has been doing in their life. Not only did Joseph want them near so that he could have his family down the road, but so that he could save them from the famine that was beginning. Well, I invite you this morning to turn to Genesis chapter 46. And uh, I'm going to read a, a number of portions. We're going to consider chapters 46 and 47 this morning. Then next week, 48 through 50. Uh, so if you have been a good student and been reading ahead, uh, read ahead next week to chapter through the end of the book. And uh, if you've got some free time on your hand this week, I want to encourage you to read the whole book in one setting 
It'll only take you three hours. Um, and guess what? You'll probably watch three hours of terrible TV anyways. So instead of doing that, spend three hours, read the whole book in one sitting, and I bet you God will speak and show you some tremendous uh, things through his word. Well, this morning, I'm going to read just a number of portions, kind of give you a glimpse, if you will, of the story. So we're not going to have time to read the whole thing. Um, and, uh, and one, I, I don't want you to laugh at me as I pronounce some of these words. So uh, I'm going to skip over some of that stuff. Uh, but I'm going to begin reading in verses 1 uh, through 7, and then I'll, I'll kind of have you follow along. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, if you will, just jump down to verse 27, or rather 26, at the end of this section. After reading a long list of genealogy and the descendants and the family members, the the registry of the family, Moses writes, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Well, as we continue along, we'll see as the story unfolds there that they are reunited reunited in verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariots and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to Egyptian to the Egyptians. And then finally, if you will, just look at the end of chapter 47 and verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called Joseph his son and said to him, If I am now found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Well, as we consider chapters 46 and 47, we could simply unite these two chapters under one overarching theme. The Lord promises to be with his people wherever they go. This is again a theme that we've seen throughout. Uh, The point of many of the stories of Jacob's life is that reminder. So you might be reminded when when Jacob was told by his his father and mother, particularly his mother, to, to flee from his brother Esau and go back to Abraham's family and Isaac's family. When they were to go back, God met him at Bethel and said, Jacob, You're about to leave the promised land. But listen, I will be with you wherever you go. When you go back, I will be with you. And when you come again, I will be with you. God continually confirms this promise. And then we see it again here. Jacob leaving the promised land. And what does God do? He comes to him and says, listen. Listen, 
I'm going to be with you wherever you go. Now, for you and I, who definitely have spiritual minds, we, we have the understanding and fuller revelation of the Spirit and the Holy Spirit and dwelling of the Spirit and, and the understanding of God's omniscience and omnipresence among us. For these patriarchs, we have to understand what God was doing in the book of Genesis. You'll be helped to remember that when God created Adam and Eve, he created a garden temple in Eden where, where Adam's job was to be a priest where he worshipped God. When they fell and humanity fell into sin, they were cast out of the presence. That temple garden was gone and God's presence was separated from his people. And what God had begun to do is reestablish his presence among his people through a particular allotment of property, a land mass, where God would be among his people, where he would establish his kingdom and temple where he would meet with his people. And so this is why the patriarchs take so seriously because God had warned them, listen, don't go down to Egypt. Don't go north to Assyria. Don't go around to, to stronger, more powerful countries. Rather, trust that I am with you wherever you go. This, of course, would continue to be a, a fleeting problem for the nation of Israel as they would constantly look to Egypt as a superpower and look to them for strength and lean on them, ultimately to their own de demise, because they were trusting in, in Egypt. But, but, and so God is warning them through this and, and instructing them and teaching them. And so the purpose of our time this morning is, is we want to think about this, obviously, in a Christian context. Um, this isn't a synagogue. Um, we want to think about this as Christians. I think one really overarching objective for us is that as God's people, we need to be comforted that this is our God. This is how our God acts. Our God makes promises and he keeps those promises. See, we are so accustomed to living in a world where promises are made and promises aren't kept. I promise I'll be home by 5, and we run, roll in at 5.30. I promise I'll you know, do this, or I promise I'll do that, or I promise, I promise, I promise. And so since we're so accustomed to living in a world where promises aren't met, we often think God is one who can't meet his promises. But our story this morning reveals to us that God is a promise-keeping God. He will be with us wherever we go. And so, so that truth... God will be with us wherever we go. I want to show you three places God is with us in our, in our story this morning. First, we see that God is with us even when we are afraid. God is with us when we're afraid. Secondly, God is with us when we're far from home. Thirdly, God is with us even when we're dying as we consider the final years of the patriarch's life. First, in chapter 46, in verses 1 through 27, we see that God is with us when we are afraid. This new scene begins with Jacob making his plans to re relocate his family to Egypt. As his journey begins, he makes a quick stop in Beersheba, sort of a, a family stomping ground. This was the location where his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham lived. It was a place where they often would meet with God, sort of a landmarker of the Lord's presence among his people. And so naturally, as uh, perhaps you've done when you've left your hometown, you, you know, stop at your favorite eatery. You maybe stop by and, and see your family members. Jacob does the same. Uh, he stops by Beersheba and worships the Lord. And, and we're told that that night when he worshiped the Lord, he, he has his first vision he's had since he was a young boy, since he came back from being away from the promised land and gathering all of his possessions. During this time of worshiping the Lord, God speaks to him and confirms that he is to travel to Egypt. So if you look there again at verse, verses 1 through 4, God comes to him and says to him, Jacob, Jacob, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid, he says. This implies that Jacob was afraid. He was fearful. Perhaps he was afraid because his father Isaac had told him, listen, don't go down there. 
Bad things happen when you go down. Man, let me tell you about what happened to Grandpa when he was down there. Uh, he tried to pass your grandmother off a- a- as his sister, and he about got himself killed. And then I did the same thing. Don't be afraid, Jacob. It'll be okay. Jacob was leaving the comfort of the promised land. He was, he was leaving the comfort of home, and he was, he was going to a place he had, he had never been before, a place that his, his ancestors had been forbidden to, to tread. But God comes to him and reassures him and commands him, go down there. He was afraid. In the midst of his fear, God comes to him and says, I will go down with you. So look there at verse 4. Look what God says to him. I will go down and I will bring you up again. In other words, God was saying to him, this is only temporary, Jacob. This is not going to be your permanent home. This place where Joseph is settling, and don't, don't, don't unpack all your bags. It's only a temporary lodging place. See, I'm going to go down with you, and I'm going to come back with you. I'm going to send you down, and I'm going to bring you home. As time would tell, Israel will flourish during their time in Egypt and become a great nation. As God promises here, look again what he says. He says, I will make you into a great nation there. I have good things planned for you here. As we'll see in just a moment, there's only 70 of them. How how will 70 people become a great nation? Well, as time will tell, they will become a great nation. And this passage might seem very similar to something else he said to Jacob's grandfather years earlier. In Genesis chapter 17, God says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come with you from you. And I will establish my covenant with you and I will give you this land, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Jacob knew that. He heard that story. He heard how God had promised uh, to make them a great nation in the land of Canaan. And now, seemingly sort of reversing course, God is saying, no, no, I want you to leave. Because, see, God is going to do something that he will do over and over and over again through the history of Israel. It will be through suffering that God will bring about exaltation. You see, first Israel had to suffer before they could be exalted. First they had to become slaves before they could become free. But before exaltation, they would suffer for 400 years. And these promises, even the promise here in chapter 46, do not come true, are not fulfilled in the lifetime of Jacob. It will not even be in the lifetime of Joseph. As the book of Genesis closes with the promises. But yet God promises that he will bring him up again. God is making some big promises. And as we'll see, God will fulfill those promises. Now we're told that Jacob relocates his entire family. So in verses 5 through 7, we're told that his whole family leaves. He doesn't leave any remnant behind. This is important because God is trying to to teach the nation of Israel, that they are unified in their descent and they'll be unified in their ascent. You see, when the nation of Israel leaves Egypt in the Exodus 400 years later, not a soul is left behind. Everyone leaves. Everyone goes down and everyone returns. God will bless them in their time of suffering in Egypt. Well, before we move on, I want to just look through this uh, registry, if you will, in verses 8 through 27. Through 8 through 27, we are sort of given a list of all the family members of Jacob. We're told that there's 70 persons in all in Jacob's family. In verses 8 through 15, there's 33 from Leah. In verses 16 and 18, Zilpah had 16. There's 14 from Rachel in verses 19 through 22. And from her servant, Beliah, seven in verses 23 through 25. Uh, Moses arranges this in a particular way. It's it's ten times seven. A number of perfection. This is the perfect family. Though they don't act perfectly, this is God's perfect family. Seventy people. 
a number that was meant to represent divine institution. This was a divine family. And God was going to do great things. He would make these 70 folks broken, distorted, in need of Jesus into a great and mighty nation such that when they leave Egypt 400 years later, just short of a million people. That's a big nation. God was fulfilling his promises. And for I just want to remind us this morning that, that Jacob was afraid to go down to Egypt, naturally so. He was fearful. But as you read this chapter, you see that God was with him time and time again. He was with him and blessing him. God was the one who provided those 70 people. God was the one who continued to sustain him. God was the one who would see them become a great nation. And, and this morning, I think it's helpful for you just to ask, friend, what are you afraid of? What is it that's driving your fears this morning? To be frank, fear is not wrong. Fear is an emotion that God has given us. It's a God-given emotion. Just like joy and just you know being happy, fear is an emotion. But friends, fear can be debilitating. And Jacob had a debilitating fear. He was afraid. But God came to him and reassured him. What are you afraid of this morning that, that you need to turn and trust the Lord in? There's many things in this season to be afraid of. Afraid of losing your job. Afraid of an invisible virus. Afraid of hurting someone else because you have that virus. Afraid of a whole host of things. Jesus regularly reassured his disciples then that when they were afraid. He didn't criticize them. He didn't laugh at them. He didn't ridicule them. He didn't belittle them because they were afraid. I mean, think about it. when you read the Gospels, these guys were always afraid. Whether they were afraid in the sea, afraid in the night, they were kind of scaredy cats. But Jesus doesn't wrap them in his arms and pat them on the back and tell them it's going to be okay. He always spoke truth to them. You see, the truth was what stilled their fears. The, the promises of God is what helped to to diminish their fears. So an example of this. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus teaching his disciples. They were kind of worried about the Pharisees. And what the religious leaders might do to them. Afraid they might get put in jail. Because they were going against them. Jesus says to them. Hey listen disciples. Do not fear those who can kill the body. But not kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see what he did there? See, he doesn't come and coddle them. He doesn't, you know, hold their hand. He says, listen, there's some truth that you need to know. There is someone more powerful and greater. This is similar to what God does to Jacob. I'm God. I'm God. Not Pharaoh. Not Joseph. I am God. I'll see you down there and I will see you back again. Or what we'll sing in a moment. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith. Where? In his excellent word. Well, you have weak faith, Rippon says. Go to the word. There is the foundation. There is where your faith. What more can he say than to you he hath already said? <laughs> to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. In other words, he says God's word is sufficient. There's nothing more he needs to say. We don't need writings in the sky or revelations from some prophets he has written everything you need in his word. God's word is sufficient to still your fears, to comfort you in the midst of darkness and difficulty. Brothers and sisters, the remedy to your fear is the word of God. Read it. Read it. Is your faith weak? Read the word of God. This is the only medicine that will still your soul. God's promises and believing that they are true. God makes promises and he keeps his word. He is with us even when we are afraid. His promises are to comfort and bring about peace in our lives. But God is not only with us when we are afraid. We see as the story continues that God is with us even when we are far from home. Now, I don't mean being homesick. 
you know, went and be back in mom and dad's house. I don't mean that at all. I, I mean home, home, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I mean heaven. That's your home, right? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a dwelling place where you and I will dwell together. That's your home. If you are a believer in Christ, the Bible regularly tells us this world is not our home. Jacob, the promised land, was that home. That's what we heard in Hebrews. I'll read that again in just a moment. But, but the patriarchs understood the promised land as a foretaste of the heavenly home. It, it was something, it was an earthly representation of what heaven would be like. Even in Genesis, we have that, that glimpse. And so for Jacob, he's leaving, if you will, his heavenly home. He's leaving the place of security and safety and comfort. The place where he meets with God. And God reassures him, listen, I'm going to be with you down there. I'm going to sustain you and I will bring you home. So verse 28, if you look in your Bibles, introduces a, a new scene. Jacob settling his family into Egypt. The scene begins with Joseph and Jacob reuniting. We're told that Judah becomes the leader, guiding his family. Remember what I told you, the story is really about Judah becoming the leader that God needed him to be. And look, lo and behold, what are we told there in verse 28? There in verse 28, if you see, jo Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show them the way in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Friends, this is Moses sort of leading a little seed for us that we'll, we'll uncover next week. That Judah will be the leader of the family when, when the patriarch Jacob passes away. Joseph and Jacob have an emotional reunion. Twenty years have passed since they've seen one another, and naturally so they embrace, we are told, such that they weep upon each other's necks for a good while, there in verse 29. From there we are told that Joseph prepares his brothers to meet Pharaoh. In an unfolding scene, uh, Joseph demonstrates again and again through the story that, that he is the administrator that the family needed to, to, to sort of broker the deal. Now, 70 people wasn't very many, but it could be seen as an invading army. Just as Joseph had questioned his brothers uh, days earlier, hey, I think you're spies that are here to spy out the land. So Pharaoh could have thought that maybe that was the underlying intention of, of Joseph's family. And so Joseph sets it up. He says, listen, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And when you go to Pharaoh, I want you to tell him what you do. You're, you're shepherds. And we're told there at the end of verse 34 that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. In other words, uh, Joseph is carefully and intentionally making sure that his family does not intermingle with the culture in Egypt. He is he's seeking to preserve his family from the cultic worship that he knows goes on in the life. Who is he married to? Joseph's married to one of the priests. Uh, daughters, all right? So he knows what kind of religious activity goes on down there in Egypt. And so he's ensuring and preserving his family from intertwining themselves in the culture of Egypt and giving them the land of Goshen, a land which was fruitful, a land that would have been perfect. Joseph knew the land. He knew what would be just right. And it's meant to teach us that God was with him through Joseph mediating the promises of God, even when they would be far from home. And as you read through this, you see that God continues to bless again and again and again. So Joseph's brothers then go to Pharaoh. They stand before him. And, and Pharaoh says, yeah, you can have the choice land. You can have that land of Goshen, that good land. And you can go. But not only are they given the land, we are told there in verse 6, if you look, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your fathers and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. Hey, listen to this. He says, and hey, if you know any able men among you, can they shepherd my flock too? You see, God was using the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the nations rather than a curse. You remember years earlier that the nation of Israel was a curse to those around them. In the slaughter of Shechem, when they killed an entire village, as a, as a way to get revenge on the assault on their sister Diana. We see here in this passage that the nation of Israel is finally doing what God intended them to do. 
That is to be a blessing to the nations. You see, the nation of Israel was to mediate God's blessings, not only in the promised land, but wherever they went, because God was with them, they would be a blessing of others. Well, we see that in verses 10, 7 through 10. What, is ja- what does Jacob do when he goes and talks to Pharaoh? Well, look there. We're told twice in these three verses that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. They have a bit of an exchange. Jacob tells him, hey, I'm 130 years old. He's an old dude. Jake, Joe, Pharaoh's like, whoa, that's crazy old. Um, how, how is this even possible? Again, just a reminder of God's blessing of Jacob. We see here in the blessing that, that they are blessing again the nation of, of Egypt. The nation of Israel was a blessing rather than a curse. And they're fulfilling exactly what God intended through the Abrahamic covenant. What Isaac was unable to do, what Abraham himself was unable to do, where he was often a thorn in the flesh of men like Abimelech and the kings around them in Philistia, the nation of Israel was finally becoming a light to the nations. So in Genesis chapter 12, God said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You see, so often I've found in, in, in churches that Christians sort of have a, a really weird understanding of Israel. The nation of Israel wasn't meant to be the sole place God was blessing. No, God meant the nation to mediate those blessings around the globe. But they failed in that because they chose to live life their own way and rebel against God's purposes. This is why God exiled them from the land. Because they weren't a blessing to those around them. Rather they were a curse. But throughout this story we see that God is continually blessing those around them. Because they are faithfully following him. But the point remains. As you see the unfolding story. God was blessing them. He was with them. He is confirming. Sort of sealing upon them. This sort of Abrahamic covenant. That will then become sort of the covenant God will use to bring about the blessings of all people and all nations. Friends, you heard earlier in the scripture reading in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Listen again to what what the author, how how this apostolic interpretation of this passage is here in Genesis. So if you want to know, hey, how how do Christians read this story? Well, thankfully, we have the book of Hebrews and it helps us, gives us commentary. The author of Hebrews says, these all died in faith. That is Jacob and the patriarchs, Noah, not having received the things promised. Well, we've already seen that, right? They don't get the promised land. Jacob doesn't. He dies in Egypt. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Do you hear that? You see, they weren't tied to a piece of land somewhere somewhere in the Middle East. That was not their, that, they didn't care. That, that was just a foretaste of heaven. They, they acknowledged the fact that, that they were sojourners. If they had been seeking that land, a physical land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Brothers and sisters, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never fully realized the promises of God in their lifetime. Never. The prophets never, rarely got to see God's promises fulfilled in their lifetime. Not until Jesus Christ came did the promises of God become fully realized. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that all the promises of God, he doesn't mean just some of the promises of God, he means all the promises of God, find their yes and amen in Jesus. That means that all these promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the person, work, and ministry of Christ. That means by extension, as Christians united to Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled through his church. Christ himself is the promised lamb. Therefore, in faith, by faith, we trust him. Remember what Jesus told his disciples before he leaves town, before he ascends to heaven. He says, lo, I am with you always. 
until the end of the age. Friend, I think it's helpful in the midst of this particular season of life to be reminded of this truth. This world is not your home. If you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you've been born again by the Spirit. This is not your home. You are a citizen of a, of a heavenly kingdom. Friends, days, these days are not going to get easier. This culture is not going to warm up to Christians. America isn't going to be the promised land. Never was going to be to begin with. You will find yourself growing less and less at home in this world every day if you are growing more and more like Jesus every day. Jesus regularly told his disciples, yo, guys, this is not my world. He used to tell the religious leaders, listen, you ain't got no authority on me. This isn't even my world. I don't even live. This, I have a kingdom that's not of this world. You have no authority over me. Brothers and sisters, there is no kingdom on this earth that has authority over us in Christ. Christ is the king of this world. He is the Lord. Friend, be reminded that you are far from home, but that God is with us. Jesus is with us. You know, chapter 11 of Hebrews, we know well because we, of the conclusion. In Hebrews chapter 12, rather, end of chapter 11, what I just read, uh, the end of that begins chapter 12 where the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising this shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he's saying, listen, this world is going to cling to you. It's going to stick to you. It's going to want you to make you into itself, into this world. But you are being transformed. And there is a king in glory who sits on a throne. That's the home you're going to. So get running there. Friend, what are you running after in this world? What is it in this world that you are clinging to? Or what's clinging to you of this world? Remember that God is with us. Brothers and sisters, we are on a journey to the celestial city. This is not our home. We are mere sojourners. Let us not grow weary in our travels. They are long and they are hard. But let us continue with faith, remembering that though we may be far from home, that God is with us. And he will bring us there. Finally, third and finally, we see that God is with us even when we are dying. You might think, well, how did you get that out of these last verses? Um, well, if you see, there's a bit of uh, a comparison, a parallelism, a contrast, if you will, created in the last half of verse of chapter 47. I'm going to show it to you in, very briefly. Now, to kind of set it up, I want to summarize this final scene. Beginning in verse 13, all the way to the end of verse 26, we are told about Joseph's administration and leadership over the famine and distribution of food. The scene depicts the people of Egypt, not Israel, to be clear, and perhaps the surrounding nations coming and committing themselves to serve Pharaoh. And Joseph uses this as an opportunity for Egypt to gain tremendous wealth. Perhaps Moses is sort of giving an apology, if you will, a little slight nudge to Pharaoh that, hey, you know all those coffers you have filled with gold? and well, That was actually our great-grandfather Joseph. He's the one that got all that wealth for you. It was not from their gods or their own strength, but through a Hebrew slave, the patriarch Joseph, that God would lead for Egypt to become a great wealth. This would be helpful for the nation of Israel later in life when they would often lean on Egypt. God was the source of the Egypt's strength, not Egypt themselves. 
We're told in verse 14, the people first came with their money to buy food. There was a famine. They had no food. They couldn't grow food. Crops were devastated. And so they're like you. They went down to McDonald's and bought them something to eat. And so we're told that they took their money and bought food. But hey, like everyone, maybe like yourself, there's been times, right? You know you're down and out when you don't have money to go to McDonald's and buy food. And so they began to sell their livestock. Eventually, we're told in verses 18 through 19 that they had to sell themselves, right? You've all heard the joke, right? If you, ain't got, if you can't pay the bill, you've got to go clean the dishes. Well, that's what they had to do. They had to go clean the dishes because they couldn't buy the food. Again, the narrator, Moses, is emphasizing that Joseph is the one who bought up and acquired all the great wealth in Egypt. And Joseph puts this newly acquired workforce to work as he gives them seed to work and then ultimately they give back. But if you consider that, that scene, right? It's sort of really sad scene, right? These, these folks are dying and they're having to sell themselves into slavery in order to stay alive. Now contrast that picture, bleak, and ugly, and sad, with verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, possessions, plural, in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. While the nation of Egypt waned under the famine, what happened to the nation of Israel? They flourished. God was blessing them. He was with them. While everyone was dying around them, God was with them even in death. God was sustaining them. They were fulfilling that creation mandate of being fruitful and multiply. Remember that, that command that God gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, that was then given to Noah and then was given to Abraham and now is given to Jacob. While, while Egypt was crushed under a famine, God was blessing his people. He was truly with them wherever they went. And as the scene closes, Joseph is... Or rather, Jacob begs Joseph, don't bury me here. This isn't my home. Look here at verse 29. He's 147 years old. Mind-blowing, right? And the time came when the time drew near that Israel must die. He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I am found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will, go, I will do as you said. And he said, swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Why didn't he want to be buried in Egypt? Because that wasn't the promised land. Because that isn't where what God had promised. You remember in verse 4 of chapter 46, God had said, I'm going to go down with you and I'm going to bring you back. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring, I'm going to go down with you all and I'm going to bring you all back. But rather, he says, I'm going to go down with you, Jacob, and I'm going to bring you back and Joseph will close your hand. Opening and closing this, these chapters, 46 and 47, is Jacob's death. And the dying wish is that his bones do not stay in Egypt. For Egypt was not his home. It was not the place where God had promised his resting place. What might seem to us to sort of a simple burial arrangement was something far greater. It was Jacob teaching his family that we're not staying in Egypt. You know, isn't that so true of us? We often, where our burial places are, where the cemetery, that, that's sort of our roots, right? And perhaps you were sort of part, a nomadic family, uh, as you're growing up, moving all over. And it feels weird, right? You know, you've got uh, relatives buried, you know, halfway across the country. But, you know, so often it is, it's sort of, that's home, right? Where, where family's buried, that's home. And so it was for Jacob. That was home. Where Grandpa Abraham and Daddy Isaac were born. That's, that was home. And he was teaching his people that God would be with them even in death. Even anticipating Israel's future exodus and foreshadow what we're going to see here in just a moment. 
In chapter 50 of Genesis, as, Joseph's, as Jacob is now dead, Joseph says to him, look, I'm about to die myself, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to our father Jacob. Like a baton being passed from one generation to the next, this promise that God was going to raise them up again, they never put them in the ground. Because God had a promise, he had a plan. Years later, under the leadership of Moses, Moses would say this to Pharaoh. He would say, Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn. This passage is important because it helps to understand what God is doing here in this particular story. You see, Israel was God's chosen child and God was going to fulfill his promises to him. And it wouldn't be until the exodus that God fulfilled those promises as they, as they would carry the bones of even Joseph out coffin. But we see something foreshadowed much greater than this as the Bible unfolds. Did you know Jesus himself spent some time in Egypt? The prophet uh, Hosea prophesied that the Messiah would come. When he, in Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea looked back in Israel's history and said, God is going to do the same thing he did then when the Messiah comes. God would do, not deliver his people, though, in this new way from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And so in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13, Matthew understands these passages in this way. Listen to this. This is, of course, when Jesus was a child. Now, when they had departed and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This isn't the same Joseph. This is Jesus's dad, Joseph, in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. You see, God was writing a story that would be retold over and over again. A story where God's son would be sent to Egypt and would be delivered from Egypt that he might deliver his people from bondage. This story that God told here in these passages in Genesis chapter 47 is the story that God would tell him with his own son. As God fulfilled his promise to the patriarch, it would be thousands of years later, not 400. It would be the person of Jesus Christ when he ascended from Egypt to live a life of godliness and follow his heavenly father. It would be him and through his death and resurrection that would ultimately bring fulfillment to this particular passage this morning. Well, this is how Hosea understood it. This is how Matthew understands it. And this is how Christians for 2,000 years have understood. That God is with us and his promises will not fail. Sometimes God doesn't fulfill his promises right away. Sometimes it takes thousands of years. And we know Romans 8, 28 well. We quote it. We memorize it. We might even write it on our walls. That we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We like that verse. Makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. But what if God's purpose leads to our death? What if God's purposes are to lead to suffering? Or persecution? What if God's purpose is to send some unseen virus to instill fear and to cause our faith to grow? Do you know that Romans 28 continues and concludes in verse 38? For I'm sure of this, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, do you fear death this morning? Are you afraid of dying? Look, let's be honest. When you're young, death's so far from you. 
when you're older, seems like it could be today. As Christians, we are reminded that Christ overcame death, that he died and rose again. Even here in the descent and ascension of the nation of Israel is a picture and foretaste of their ascent and the ascension of Christ. The, the resurrection, the new, the new life, the hope that Jacob had was in eternity. Not in the promised land, but in the promised one. The one who would be victorious over sin and death. So this morning, turn from your sin, stop living your way and turn to God and find his new way. Find strength for your faith in him and him alone. Brothers and sisters, the, 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 the promises of God are true. He keeps his word. He is the only one who is trustworthy in your life. You can depend your soul even upon death in him. Remember, the Lord is with you wherever you go. He's with you whether you're afraid this morning. He's with you while we're far from heaven. He's with us. Even this morning is the weight of a fallen world is on you and the wages of that world. And as your body is breaking down, God is with you. He's with me. Jacob trusted the Lord even unto death. As John Newton would famously say moments before his death, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Friends, let that be our abiding memory even upon death in our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ and eternal life in Christ. And Father, this morning, many of us may be riddled with fear, doubt, discouragement. May we have renewed hope in the promises that you've given us. May we trust in your promises. Let your word abide in us. Holy Spirit, teach us to trust you. Help us sustain us on our journey home. We know that you're with us, and we believe without a shadow of a doubt that you will get us to that celestial city. No matter how hard, no matter how dark, no matter how difficult that road will be and is right now, bring us safely home, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.